Thank you, Paul and Becky. It's great to have you guys. Blessed by that as always. Churches, uh, I read a lot about church polity these days and figuring things out. And one thing that local churches are struggling with is the internet pastor and how you can get your theology from anywhere you want. And we learn in 1 Timothy how you can find anything that's going to tickle your ears in a line and butter you up or find something that says, this is exactly what I want. And uh, that's actually a big problem in the local churches because the local church is what's called to be the flock of God, the body of Christ together. But today, I'm exceedingly thankful that we have YouTube so that our members who are out sick can uh, fellowship with us today. So if you're out there, which I know you are, I'm glad you are able to participate today and I hope you get better. We are praying for you. Today, we're going to look at probably one of the sweetest passages in scripture. I mean, I think there's a lot of contenders for this, but we're going to look at the promise, the beautiful promise that the angel Gabriel gives to Mary. Let's pray. Father God, what a day we have to read in scripture, just the culmination of your promises to your people, how you have promised to send that Messiah, that Savior, and here we get to see it, Lord God, the miracle of Gabriel coming to Mary and of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, and to have your son, Jesus Christ, come be born on this earth to make way, a path for our unity with you, Father God. I pray that we'll see this beauty today. You know, we pray. Amen. Luke 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a betrothed man, I'm sorry, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. As we go through this passage today, I think we're going to see um, probably four unique points First one we're going to see is that God chooses the lowly. God chooses the lowly. And we're going to see, secondly, that God sent his promised Messiah. And third point, he sent his promised Messiah because we need a Savior. And then lastly, we're going to see uh, that, therefore, we are called to serve God humbly. 
So just to recap from last week where we left off, right? So last week we saw Luke start his letter off to O Theophilus, but generally to a wider Christian Gentile audience, those who already believed in Jesus and heard of him, but didn't come from the Jewish tradition, didn't have all those blanks filled in. We see that he kind of establishes his credentials and his purpose for writing. This is authoritative. I have interviewed eyewitnesses. I have seen things. I have walked and journeyed. This is something you can trust. This is an account worthy of trusting. And then he tells us a story as he begins his conversation, his letter, his document to Theophilus, but this Gentile audience. And he says, okay, the story of this Messiah begins with paving the way with the miraculous birth of John the Baptist or prophecy of his birth. We see that he comes to this old man who is righteous and his wife who is old and barren and also righteous and says, you will have a child and he will be great and he will be filled with the power and spirit of Elijah and he will turn many, many of the children of Israel to the Lord. Right? And we're going to see this little parallel today, but take note, we saw last week, he said, we saw Zechariah's little bit of doubt and how the angel said, okay, well, as a sign and a punishment, you will be mute until this, this is fulfilled. And sure enough, he goes home. His wife, Elizabeth, becomes pregnant. And it says, and she hid herself for five months. She hid herself for five months. And then we continue on right here today's passage. We get to verse uh, 26 here. We say, so the sixth month, come to the sixth month here. So in Luke 126, I'll read this again, this first couple of verses here. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God, sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed of a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at that saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So Gabriel comes to Mary, right, this relative of Elizabeth's. And we know that Mary was likely 13, 14, 15. There's speculation no one knows specifically, but it's young. The age of betrothal at this time was 13 years old. And this was a legally contracted, legally binding betrothal. This families get together, you will marry, and there is a dowry, a payment made. And so she was legally committed at some young age, somewhere between 13 and 15, to be married to this man, Joseph. If you're, uh, could you imagine what you were doing at 13, 14, 15? And have an angel of the Lord came to you with a promise like that? I don't, I don't know that I would have handled it well. But this is what Gabriel says. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. He calls her, O favored one. So Mary is chosen by God at this young age to be this favored one. Now, scripturally, we don't, we don't really see anything special about Mary. She's not from a prominent family. She's not rich. There's no mention about her lineage. We have what lineage we do have is about Joseph's family. We don't know that she was particularly righteous. Scripture doesn't tell us that, at least at this young age. We see that later on in her life, right? And so you'd think just the way that world worked back then, if they were going to send a Messiah, if God is going to send his son to be born of a young girl, don't you think those Pharisees would have been like, well, that's going to be my daughter. I'm the chief priest or someone of prominence. But no, that's not who God chooses here. Chooses here. We have friends. I have friends of the Roman Catholic faith and tradition. You know, they put Mary on a pedestal. They exalt Mary. And make no mistake, she is worthy of admiration. She is worthy of honor uh, in some sense. 
In 2 Timothy 2, we read, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. So God clearly chose Mary to be an honor, a vessel of honor. He gave her this great honor. She didn't earn this honor. Who could earn such an honor to be the mother of the Messiah? It's almost like Scripture goes out of its way to downplay Mary, to make this about Jesus and Jesus alone. We don't know much about Mary. What do we know? We know that she gave birth to Jesus. We know that she was Jesus' mother when he was young and at the temple and she was worried about him. We see her at the wedding asking for a favor for her friend. We see her at the crucifixion. We see her in Acts chapter 1 with the early church as a good church member. That's what we see of Mary. We don't know a ton more about her. We can admire Mary as Christians, definitely. We can admire Paul, Apostle, Timothy, John the Baptist. All right, and we can rejoice with Mary next week when we look at her song of praise. But in Scripture, here's what we know of Mary. Here's how we are to view Mary. She was a woman, average, plain and simple. She was a young girl who was willing to serve God. She was willing to be a young mother, to care for and nurture her child with this promise in mind. She was willing to be a good friend at the wedding. She was a faithful believer. We see that in Scripture. She was a mourning mother at the cross. And she was a good church member, as we see in Acts chapter 1. That's about, that's about what we know about Mary. She's not to be exalted or elevated anywhere near deity, but she is a woman worthy of honor, as we read about in 1 Timothy 6 or 5. I remember one time asking one of my Catholic friends why they pray to Mary. Why would you pray to Mary? I was not raised Catholic at all. I had no familiarity with that tradition. And his best answer was really simple. It was just obvious. Well, the best way to a mother is through her son. And that struck me as odd because, okay, practically, earthly speaking, that may or may not be true. That kind of depends on your relationship, I guess. Um, the best way to a man's heart is through the stomach. Maybe that's true. Certainly, sometimes it is, but not always. But theologically speaking, this is false. This is not true. The only way to the Father is through the Son. Jesus himself has made himself the only mediator between a perfect God and sinful man. Jesus says clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You don't need anything else. I promise you, there is no one, Mary, Paul, anyone in heaven right now, wanting any amount of your adoration or your praise. Every single man and woman in heaven right now would say, it is 0% about me. It is about nothing other than Christ and the Father and the Spirit. All glory be to them. And this is the point of the gospel. This is what we see here in Luke. Remember, prior to this, God had his chosen people, the Jews, and they had the law of the covenant. They had their rituals and their ceremonies that they needed to keep and keep perfectly in order to be made right with God. But we knew they would sin. God knew they would sin, and they sinned. And so they had a priest to make sacrifices and make atonement for them. This was as God intended. This is how God demonstrated throughout the history of Israel that you are sinners. You are incapable of yourself. Yet through the death of a spotless sacrifice, I will forgive your sins. And so when we see Jesus Christ, this promised one, this Messiah, come to make final payment for our sins, to be that sacrifice to end all sacrifices, so that Israel would know that they could be made right with God, this is that Messiah. 
Through the Son, Jesus Christ, not through your obedience, O Israel, and Christian here. Not through your goodness, not through your wisdom, not through your understanding. This Friday we had our men's study, and we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is something that I'm constantly reminded of. So a little bit of context. Uh, Corinthians were getting a little bit clicky, and they're like, hey, I follow Paul. Oh, no, 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 I follow Peter. Well, I'm of Apollos, right? And the really spiritual ones are like, oh, I follow Christ. And so this is what we see in 1 Corinthians. These are what they were doing. They were aligning themselves. And Paul states very clearly, he's like, it's not about me. Knock it off. I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Okay, well, maybe a couple of you. But the rest, this is about God. He tells us uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. And then we see in verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is what it's all about. Mary was not chosen because she was worthy, but because she was of average birth, that God may honor her that he, and bring about his son of the earth, that we may post in the, boast in the power of God. So our encouragement today is boast in the power of God. God chooses the lowly that he may be glorified and that his power may be made known to all the nations. Moving on to our second point, and this is where we see God sent his promised Messiah. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So we saw that Gabriel tells Mary, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. You're going to conceive miraculously. You're going to bear a son. You shall call him Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high, the son of God even. This is the miracle of the virgin birth. This takes a little bit of examination. This is a le next level miracle. We saw in scripture in 1 Samuel, we see about Hannah being barren and praying and God blessing her. We read about uh, Sarah, Abram's wife, being old and conceiving miraculously. And then last week we saw about Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, old, barren, and conceiving after going home and knowing her husband. This is a miracle for sure, to get a pregnancy to a woman who's had a lifetime of barrenness, for sure. But this is not that type of miraculous conception. This is unique. This is one of a kind, and this is very intentionally so. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. God's covenant with, his, with David and going back to the children of Israel. We see in 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is what we see in Scripture a lot. Near fulfillment, far fulfillment. Yes, Solomon built a house for the Lord, but also I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will raise up your offspring after you and establish his kingdom. This is the prophecy that we see fulfilled in Jesus. We know that the nation of Israel's kingdom did not last forever. It says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. This is Israel. This is the people of Israel. But this is the household that we as Christians have been grafted into, equally now called sons of God. And it says his kingdom will have no end. Jesus is the final king. I want us to look at Daniel 7. It's a, it's a little bit long, but it fits in perfectly with this passage here. Starting in verse 13, it says, I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the kingdom that the angel Gabriel is telling Mary that her child will have. And the angel's not mixing words here. He's not like accidentally using terminology loosely. All these terms, son of the Most High, son of the Father David, reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. This is clear. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. This is the entire point of Luke's gospel, to get this on the record. This is what he's saying to Theophilus. This is what he's saying to his readers. The Messiah has come, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's writing like, guys, it's been crazy the last few years. We know this. You've heard all these stories. You believed, but you didn't have all the information. Let me fill in the blanks for you. Let me get this down. I've interviewed hundreds of witnesses. This is the definitive, take it to the bank truth of everything you've heard about this man, Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the one prophesied about. He is the one promised to Isaiah, promised to Israel. And this angel Gabriel, who had just a few months ago appeared to this old priest and said, you're going to have a son, his name will be John, and he will make way for this Messiah. And then sure enough, we see right now, six months later, he goes to get Mary, and he says, you, you a virgin who has never been with a man, you're going to become pregnant, you're going to have a son, you're going to call him Jesus, and he will be the Son of God. He will be this Messiah to rule forever. And this man, Jesus, was the fulfillment of all these promises. This is what Luke is writing. This is the historical fact that he's impressing upon his readers. So Jesus sends his Messiah, and that brings us to point three of why we need that. And the answer is because we have, I'm sorry, Jesus did not send his Messiah. God sent his Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. Because we have original sin, because we have a need for a Savior. Look in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is a sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. 
So Mary's like, how will this be? I am a virgin. And note, the angel does not give the same response to Mary that he gave to Zechariah. With Zechariah, it was, do you know who I am? I am the angel Gabriel. I stand with God. That's my inflection, not scripturally, but I think that's about what I'm reading there. Mary's question was not rooted in doubt or disbelief, just not understanding. And so the angel's response was not rooted in fear of the Lord, but in gentle compassion. Zechariah didn't ask, as we saw last week, how will this be because I'm old? He's basically saying, why should I believe you? Oh, here's your sign. Mary's just asking as a scared 15-year-old girl, how will this be possible? I don't understand. I know how babies are made. That doesn't apply to me right now. And so we see the angel uses Elizabeth's pregnancy to give proof that nothing is impossible with God. He says, she who was previously barren, who is now old, this is proof of God's power. Nothing is impossible with God. Angels using this as proof to Mary that she can trust his word. You know, your relative, we don't know the exact relationship, clearly big age gap there. But even now, she is pregnant. But her friends and family have known her entire life that she was barren, well past her child-rearing years. And yet here she is, pregnant by the divine intervention of God. And so we see what the angel tells Mary. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. One of God's attributes is omnipresent. You guys know what that means? Everyone heard that at least? It means he's all present, right? He's everywhere. And that seems kind of simple on one level. We can kind of picture it. God's here in this church with us right now, and God's in another church right now too. But God is omnipresent across every timeline. That's kind of mind-blowing. God is present right here with us right now. And God is equally present with Moses in the burning bush right now. God does not see time the way we do, right? I can look at this piece of paper and tell me which comes first. To God, it's all the same. Time does not exist for God the way it does for us. However, that only applies to God. The angels, they are created beings. The angels follow a timeline like we do. They were here before we were. They were created beings by the Lord. They are on a singularly forward-moving timeline, like we are, but they also have God's promises. So when the angel Gabriel is coming to Mary, he is saying something that he's excited for himself. He was there before the fall of Adam, Gabriel was. He was there for the promises to Abraham and Isaiah. God, Gabriel knows that God has a plan to redeem mankind from their sin, so he's eager to see this as well. We see this in Luke chapter 2. When the Messiah is born, angels appear to the shepherds and it says, And suddenly there was an angel, with the angel was a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. These angels are genuinely excited and stoked at this coming passage of promise. This is the Messiah. The angels love God. The angels do battle on our behalf. We see this scripturally. The angels know the power of the dark forces and of demons. This prophecy to Mary is the greatest thing to happen to mankind since the creation. I mean, obviously, the entirety of Jesus' ministry, right? For thousands of years since sin entered the world, 
The angels in heaven were waiting for this Savior. Israel was waiting for this Savior, this Messiah. So Gabriel is delivering this news, and he's pleased to share to Mary the unfolding of God's plan. And again, he enters her gently, telling her, this miraculous work is upon you. Through you, God, well, you get to be able to play a part in God sending his son to change the course of history for mankind. No longer to have this separation from God, from our sins. And so he says, therefore, this child will be called holy. Therefore, this child will be called holy. This word therefore, right? What, is it, what do we always say? If you see the word therefore, you got to find out what it's there for. So, note takers, here's your time to shine. There's a lot of bullet points coming right at you, okay? Follow this. Gabriel comes to this hum, humble teenage girl. He tells her, you're going to have a son. This child will be the promised Messiah that Israel's been waiting for. And this young girl says, well, how will that be? I've never, I've never known a man. And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit is going to do this. The Holy Spirit, the Most High, will overshadow you. He will envelop you completely. He will cover you. Therefore, he says that sentence is, therefore, this child will be holy, will be the Son of God. This therefore is linking the fact that this child's nature will be pure, unblemished, without sin, this is the definition of the word holy. This child will be holy because it is not born of a natural father. And this is crucial to our understanding. Jesus could not be holy if he was born of Adam, if he was born the descendant of a sinful man. Since the fall, every human born is born with what we call original sin or natural sin. Um, it's a sad state of our condition right now. Many verses speak to this. We see in Ephesians 2, by nature we are children of wrath. So full circle, coming back to our need for the Savior, coming back to this gospel. The moment we are conceived in our mother's womb, we are in sin, in bondage to this sin. And prior to Jesus, if you were an Israelite, you had to make animal sacrifices. You had to have a priest make those sacrifices on your behalf. And if you weren't an Israelite, well, I've got some bad news. Thankfully, this is what we have here in this gospel. This is why we call it the good news. Because the good news is that now all mankind equally has access to this sacrifice, to this atonement for our sins, to this forgiveness of our sins. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, born sinless because of the Holy Spirit and the power of God that fell upon Mary, this child to be born, to be named Jesus, to be holy, to be the Son of the Most High, to sit on the throne of David forever. And as we're going to see throughout the book of Luke, this path from his miraculous birth to his death on the cross is what does this work. This is the only way that we can have our relationship with the eternal God restored. That is why this is such good news. And because of this good news, going on to our fourth point, serve God humbly. Serve God humbly. So because of everything we've learned today, because God chooses the lowly, God chooses the foolish to humble the wise, because God sent his promised Messiah, and he sent his promised Messiah to people like us who need a Savior, because of our original sin, we are called to humbly serve this God. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
And the angel departed from her. Mary says, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. Compare this to Zachariah's response again. Right? The angel comes to you and says, you're going to do something miraculous? Just say, okay. Don't ask for a sign. Let it be to me as you say. This is the appropriate response to God's work in your life. Mary's response is the perfect response. However, let's acknowledge that this response is made easier when God is telling you, this is a really great thing you're going to benefit from. If God makes you handsome and smart and rich and talented and said, this is your lot in life, you're like, okay, God, let it be to me as you say. I'll bear any cross you have for me. Right? But then what do we see with Job? By the way, that's the right response. That's the right response to what God has for you if that's your case. But what Job says, right after his family is wiped out, his children, all his wealth, even his health, in abject misery, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive only good from God, and shall we not also receive evil? It is easy to receive good from the Lord, to have good things happen and say, oh, God's blessed me. Oh, look at, look at what the Lord's doing in my life. That is easy, and that is true. That is theologically true and accurate and good. If we believe that there's a God from whom all blessings flow, then we believe that there's a God from whom all things flow. Things we like and things we don't like as much. We've talked a lot about this. This world is hard. This world is hard. At the best of circumstances, just normal baseline, you have to work hard. Relationships are hard. Marriage are hard. Raising kids are hard. Is hard? I'm not sure about which part is to use there. Now add any little bit of hardship, sickness, loss of a friendship, death, loss of a job, a global shutdown where they shutter every business and keep kids home from school and print money and inflate the currency and make your dollar worth much less. Add anything like that. Add unaffordable housing costs to your life. Now tell me how hard life is. Life is hard. Like we have the example of Job in the Bible. We see that he had it easy. He was rich. He had a good family. He had great wealth. And then he goes from that to bottom of the barrel. Misery, poverty. And his response never wavered. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is good. This is not to say that he wasn't miserable. We saw that he was miserable. He went through hard times. He had the feelings that we feel of this loss and this mourning. You don't have to be happy with these current circumstances, but you must have joy in your life. Your response is to be like Mary's. Our response is, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God is not playing the short game on this one. God is playing the long game. We talked about this uh, either last week or week before. We see God's promises to Abraham and Jacob and David and all these promises that take hundreds and thousands of years to be fulfilled. God knowing what his plan was the entire time. His plan was to send a Savior, right? And for thousands of years, hundreds at least, Israel didn't get to see that plan fulfilled. They had this promise, but they didn't get to see the fulfillment of that. 
God is playing the long game. He cares about our soul. God knows. God doesn't just know. God orchestrates everything in our life for his benefit. When you lose that job, that's for God's glory and for your good. And we don't know why. Yes, maybe you end up with a, maybe you're afraid to quit that job and you end up with a better job that you never thought you'd have. And you say, oh God, thank you so much. And then maybe you just struggle on unemployment and lose your house. And you can't get another job. Both of those are from the Lord for your good. To lean on him fully for everything. He cares about you paying your bills, but he cares about your soul. Matthew 10, we see, just as Jesus speaking, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you have, are of more value than many sparrows. Isn't this comforting? We have tunnel vision. We see what we see. We care about what we care about. And God cares for us so much more than we care for ourselves. God has us where he wants us. He's working in our lives, whether we see that or not. Right now, every day we can look outside, we can see the effects of sin. We know that that's real. There's an effect of sin in this world. The effect of God and the power of God is very real too. And I see that in my life. I've seen it by the grace of God in my kids' lives. I've seen it in the lives of the families here in this church repeatedly. God is good. Amen. I want us to see James here. Coming towards the end, James tells us in chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you believe this? You can nod if you do. You don't have to. I'm not going to judge. Do we believe this? The testing of your faith Produce a steadfastness. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Are we to believe these words from, let me check my notes here, the earthly brother of the Messiah? Are we to believe that this is accurate? These things that don't go our way, they are a result of divine plan. And the goal of these things is that we may be made perfect and complete and lack in nothing. This is why we celebrate in trials and tribulations. They're not fun, but they are good for us. My friend, I have a good friend. His name is Method. If that name sounds unusual to you, it's because it is. He's from Rwanda. He literally lived that life where he walked six miles to school every day, both ways, or each way, one way, sometimes barefoot. And he used to go to the tomato fields and pick tomatoes after school and on weekends to pay for his education because you don't get a free education there. He worked very, very hard. And by God's amazing grace and providence, he got a scholarship to come to the United States. And he became an electrical engineer and he got a good job. And he worked really hard and he started a, a side hustle engineering. And in this engineering thing. He's kind of grew and grew, and now he's got an exceedingly successful company. He's got about 30 employees. He's doing very, very well, and he happens to be a sold-out follower of Christ, which is the best blessing. I look at this blessing in his life. 
And he rejoices, and I rejoice with him. But we were talking. And you know what his lamentation is? He's got a, I forget what, she's probably eight years old now, a daughter. And he's like, I can't give her the same upbringing I had. He was raised, this poor African kid, in literally an existence that almost none of us could fathom. And he's lamenting that he cannot give that same upbringing to his wife, uh, his daughter, because he knows that who he is on a material level, right? Of course, we've got God's blessings and God's providence and him honoring God and a Christian family. But on a practical level, these trials in his life, this adversity gave him what he needed to overcome and to be successful. And that when you are born in a comfortable, easy existence, that it takes away that drive and that effort. This is a worldly analogy to what we see here. Count it all joy when you meet various trials and tribulations because it is for our benefit. This is not for practical. James' point is not practical, hard work, stick to right? But in spiritual terms, you can't overcome temptation unless you fight it. And you can't fight temptation unless you're tempted. Even the Lord Jesus was tempted. Iron sharpens iron. A pillow doesn't sharpen iron. We need challenges to overcome in order to grow. So when trials come our way, when tough times come our way, which they are here, I talk to many of you, I know they're here. When you're faced with situations and dilemmas that just make you want to give up and quit, let our response be the exact same as Mary's. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. This text that we have today, this is pure joy. The Messiah has come. We needed a Savior, and God sent His only begotten Son. God chose a humble girl to be this great vessel of honor. Brothers and sisters, God chooses us, the foolish, the weak, to humble the proud and the strong. Therefore, let us serve God humbly, knowing that nothing in ourselves merits this righteousness. Nothing in ourselves is deserving of this blessing. Yet because He is a loving God, He has chosen us for our good and for His glory at times to face trials and tribulations and at times for seasons of great blessing. Let us receive everything God has for us with open hands and soft hearts. Let our hearts never cease from saying, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your promised and delivery to send your Son as a Savior, as a Messiah. That you have granted us humanity with this greatest of all gifts. That you've given us as believers the hearts to receive this gift from you, Lord God. I pray that we will walk worthy of our calling. That we will see ourselves as children of a living God. And desire to walk righteously for you. In your name I pray, amen.